I have one more very important announcement to make this morning. I almost forgot. It is Aaron Gamwell's birthday today. Yay! So everybody, don't let her out. You have to wish her a happy birthday before she gets out the back door. And so, yeah, Greg. Hey, happy birthday, Billy. Hey. Any other birthdays, anniversaries? We're all good. <laughs> awesome. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to the book of Second Peter, chapter three. We're going to finish up the chapter, looking at verses thirteen through, or rather, fourteen through eighteen this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Rod and Stephen are up. They have Bibles in their hands, ready to bring one to your seat so you can follow along with us. I think in the bulletin, I actually didn't change the verses we were on. No, I didn't, but that's right. We'll cover it all. As you're turning there, seeing how today, or tomorrow actually, is Memorial Day, I want to share with you something that uh, Jared Zinter, he was a, a, a friend of our family. He went to the church years ago. I noticed a post that he posted on uh, social media yesterday, and he's a, a retired, you know, he was in the Army and, and served, and, and he wrote this concerning Memorial Day. It isn't about pools opening, barbecues, nor is it related to special savings on couches, Today is to remember those who gave everything so we could have and do all the things and far more. Do not thank a veteran. Do not thank a wounded warrior. Thank a widow. Thank a brother who has no sibling. Thank a child that never knew their parent. It is because of these sacrifices we can live in the greatest nation to ever grace the face of this planet. We live without tyranny. End quote. And I agree. I thought that was, that was awesome. You know, Jesus put it this way in John fifteen thirteen: Greater love has no one than this than to lay what down one life for his friends. And so I think today, especially, we need to remember to pray for the family members of those that have given their lives for the freedom we so enjoy in our country today. And we'll pray for them in just a moment. Now let's read uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 18 of, of Second Peter. Peter writes, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. The title of my study this morning is Growing in Grace, Hashtag the Right Side of Life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to gather together this morning to be a people that love You and, and love Your Word and are excited to hear what You have to say to us from Your Word this morning. We pray your blessing upon our time together, your anointing upon our time together. Lord, we also do pray for uh, family members of those who have given their lives for our country, Lord, as we celebrate Memorial Day. We thank you, Lord, for the many men and women through the years that, that have, have served and, and, and sacrificed their lives to, to give us the freedom that we so enjoy. And so bless the families of these folks, Lord, we pray this Memorial Weekend. And Lord, we pray that you continue just to bless our fellowship, Lord. Uh, we pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you. 
Lord, they're not born again yet. We pray that they would see their need for you, their need for salvation, and they would come to know you today as Lord and Savior. And so we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, next time you're washing your hands and you complain that the water temperatures and just how you like it, think about how things used to be back in the 1500s. Okay, this is back in the 1500s. Most people got married in June because they took their yearly bath in May and still smelled pretty good by June. However, they were starting to smell, so brides carried a bouquet of flowers to hide the body odor. That's where you got that the tradition. In the 1500s, Baths consisted of a big tub filled with hot water. The man of the house had the privilege of the nice clean water. Then all the other sons and then the woman and finally the children and last of all the babies. But then the water was so dirty you could actually lose someone in it. Hence the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bath water. 1500s. Houses had thatched roofs, thick straw piled up high with no wood underneath. It was the only place for animals to get warm. So all the dogs and cats and other small animals, mice and, and bugs, lived in the roof. When it rained and became slippery, and sometimes the animals would slip and fall off the roof, hence the saying, it's raining cats and dogs. Now, there was nothing to stop things from falling into the house, and, and this posed a real problem in the bedroom, where bugs and other droppings could really mess up your bed. Hence, a bed with big posts and a sheet hung over the top afforded some protection. That's how canopy beds came into existence. The 1500s, the floor was dirt. Only the wealthy had some others other than dirt. Hence, the saying, dirt poor. The wealthy had slate floors that, that would get slippery in the winter when wet, so they would spread thresh, straw on the floor to help keep their footing. Well, as the winter wore on, they kept adding more thresh until you opened the door, it would all start to slip out. Thus, a piece of wood was placed in the entranceway, hence a threshold. One, two more. Three more. I promise they'll get more boring as we go along. <laughs> in those days, they cooked in the kitchen with a big kettle that always hung over the fire. Every day, they lit the fire and added things to the pot. They mo ate mostly vegetables and did not get much meat. They would eat the stew for dinner, leaving leftovers in the pot to get cold overnight and then start over the next day. Sometimes the stew had food in it that had been there for quite a while. Hence the rhyme, peas porch hot, peas porch cold, peas porch in the pot, nine days old. You got that right. Now sometimes they could obtain pork, which made them feel quite special. When visitors came over, they would hang their bacon to show it off. It was a sign of wealth that a man could... Bring home the bacon, right? You got that one. They would cut off a little to share with the guests and we'd all sit around and chew the fat. That's where that came from. Finally, you guys can give an applause for that. Finally, last one. In the 1500s was old and, and small and, and the local folks started uh, uh, running out of places to bury people. So they would dig up coffins and would take the bones to a bone house and reuse the grave. Well, when reopening these coffins, one out of 25 coffins were found to have scratch marks on the inside, and they realized that they were burying people alive. So they thought they would, would uh, tie a string on the wrist of the corpse, lead it through the coffin and up to the ground and tie it to a bell. Some would have to sit into the graveyard all night, and that would be the graveyard uh, shift, to listen to the bell. Thus, someone could be saved by the bell or was considered a dead ringer. As Paul Harvey would say, now you know the rest of the story. 
Well, I'm so glad things have changed over the years, that, that we've learned, that we've grown. I'm truly thankful for our modern conveniences. I'm thankful to be living at this time in history. And, and that is God's desire, Spirit, so that we continue to grow in our walks with Him. Again, my study this morning is growing in grace, the right side of life, because Christ calls us, all of us as Christians, to the right side of life in an upside-down world. And as we look around, we really do see we're living in an upside-down world. We know how dark it is outside the four walls of this church. Just look at our headlines this past week. Ten people are dead and 13 others are injured at that, the shooting at the Santa Fe High School in Texas. And this is, this is, a, it's become a normal thing. The things that the M13 gang's members have done is nothing less than satanic activity at its worst. The world, the violence, our society, the, the perverseness, the people, the evilness, the rebellion, it's dark, it's grim. And it makes you wonder why anyone would want to stay living their lives in that darkness. You wonder why more people aren't tired of this life and looking to Jesus Christ. When you see that all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for us, why are people still choosing to live in darkness? Well, Paul gives us the explanation for it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4, where he says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. See, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of those around us so they don't even see the darkness, the rut, the routine that they're in. Now, the problem is, we too, we see it clearly. And I think that can get us down. That can get us feeling overwhelmed when we see the darkness all around us. And it makes it maybe feel hard to get up in the morning, knowing the battles we all have to face. That co-worker that just wants to harass you because you named the name of Christ. The, the temptations to give into your flesh and the selfish desires and pride and the frustration of, of praying for a family member salvation and seemingly nothing is happening. And it seems like, almost like it's routine morning after morning after morning. And then you think about our country and how divided it is. It couldn't be more divided. Most celebrities are, are, are liberal, anti-Trump, anti-gun, pro-abortion, pro-homosexuality. Most of middle-class America is conservatives, pro-Trump, pro-Second Amendment, against abortion, and, and look at homosexuality as a sin. But because celebrities have the, the higher voice, the louder voice, because of the media, they get hurt. I found an interesting quote years ago from Bob Costas. He made this after the death of Princess Diana. He said this, and I quote, We live in an aggressively stupid celebrity culture. It isn't just dumb, it's aggressively dumb. This whole celebrity thing is related to the dumbing down of everything. It's related to shorter attention spans, to superficiality, and the placing of value on celebrity itself. And yet again, it seems like this great divide, especially in some of the celebrities' hatred for our president. I was in, in Hobby Lobby on, on Thursday, and I overheard a lady on her phone. I don't want to hear about Donald Trump again. Quit calling me. Goodbye. I'm thinking, wow, lady, I mean, <laughs> not that bad. So all this stuff is going on in the world. We see this and we're faced with this all the time. And, and Peter has been trying to encourage us and tell us that one day, very soon, this curtain's going to fall. This show's going to be over. And every person who's ever lived will stand before God, stripped of any celebrity status, stripped of any fame or fortune, and they will have to give an account for their lives. And those not found covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will be sent into everlasting punishment and torment. But 
Peter doesn't want us to grow discouraged. He'd rather us grow in grace and keep our eyes on the Lord. And so he describes for us really the right side of life in this upside down world. He gives us instruction on how we as Christians are to live in light of Jesus' soon return. Again, so often I think we just want to quit. And there might be someone here today that, that wants to quit. Maybe you want to give up on your marriage or maybe you want to give up on your ministry or give up on some relationship or some task that God has asked you to do. Maybe you've gotten too much opposition, too much persecution, and, and you just want to throw in the towel. I'm sure you know we've all been there or are going to be there. So we need to not quit, though. We need to keep going. Gene Spurgeon used to say, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. I like that. It's a picture of the ark, you know, and you got the animals on it, and they're, they're looking way out in the distance. They see two little snails walking up there. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. And I feel that's where we're at. Hey, man, the Lord's coming back. Come on, let's get ready. Let's get ready to go. And that's what Peter's telling us this morning. Don't give up. Hang in there. We're close. Now, in chapter 1, he told us we need to rest in our relationship with the Lord, that God has provided everything that we need for, for life and for godliness. In chapter 2, we're told to resist anything that is false. Resist the false teachers. Reject it. So rest, resist. And then we came to chapter 3 and we're told to be ready because Jesus is coming back. Rest, resist, and be ready. Look back at verses 10 through 13 for a moment. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, if you remember last week, we took a trip to the dump. Right? We saw all your old stuff. And last week we went to the junkyard and saw, saw your old car sitting in the junkyard as, as a pancake. And we noted how since it's all going to burn, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, holy living, set apart for Christ. Godliness, living our lives to please the Lord. Because if possessions don't matter in our lives, then what is left is your relationship with the Lord. You see... What you have apart from your possessions is what's going to make a difference in eternity. And Peter says, since it's all going to burn anyway, since the world is going to dissolve in a fervent heat, what manner of persons ought we to be? In other words, knowing that the Lord is going to return and that the possessions don't really matter, how should we be living? How do we live in this world and still grow in grace as we wait for His return? Well, Peter tells us we need to do an examination. Lays out three things we need to examine. Number one, if you're taking notes, the condition of our hearts. Number two, the condition of our minds. Number three, the condition of our walks. First, the condition of our hearts. See, what we learned from Peter is that if this world is really coming to an end, if we're really going to look forward to it, then there needs to be a certain condition in our hearts today. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. So looking forward to the Lord's return. So Peter says, okay, imagine for a moment the world is over. It's the end. We are on the other side of eternity. Are you looking forward to that? 
Now, someone with a lot of possessions and, 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 and it's all about living this life now, you know, uh, you know, maybe they said, no, I'm not looking forward to that. I, you know, I, I, these things mean too much to me, you know. I, I want to, you know, retire and enjoy all these things that I have. I shared this last week. Possessions are not a bad thing as long as they don't possess you. But what if they're all taken away? What then? You know, it's been said uh, the real worth of someone is who they are without anything. If you have no money, who are you? No status, who are you? Who are you without your stuff? They say if you're somebody without stuff, it's probably because you have something of, of a spiritual substance in you. And I would venture to say you're absolutely ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And the, the thought of Jesus returning brings you peace. And that's what Peter's saying here in verse 14. If you truly believe that Jesus could return at any moment, then your life is going to stand out from the rest of the world because you're going to have this heart full of peace. Turmoil in the world, but you're going to have peace. But not only that, your heart will be without, without spot and blameless, he says. So a heart of peace without spot and blameless. That word for peace there, if you're taking note in the Greek, Greek it implies oneness, rest, prosperity. Jesus said this in John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. Not, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. How do we have peace in an unpeaceful world? It's to be found in, in oneness. Oneness is abiding in Christ. Jesus said in John fifteen four, Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. See, our relationship with Christ is unlike anything else in, in the human realm. It can be described only by comparing it to a relationship between, uh, you know, uh, you know, the husband and wife, you know, the love that they have for each other, or, or, you know, the love and respect of a father and a son. So there's this peace, there's this oneness from abiding in Christ. So that you're living this way when the Lord returns for you, it'd be as though, you know, the Lord never left. I like what Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, once said. He says, when Christ returns for me, I want to have the transformation take place so immediate, so instantaneous, that I don't know that anything has really happened. I like that. I think Pastor Chuck lived that out. What he's saying is that, that you get to the place in your life where you're so pure in heart, you're so one with the Lord, doing what you're supposed to do so that when you leave this body and you're up in heaven, you're still kind of in the process of doing what you were doing before. Let me give you an example. What if suddenly the rapture happens right now, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye? Flash the sound of the trumpet, and here I am teaching the Word of God, and the next sentence that leaves my lips, suddenly I say, and my next point is, and poof, we're all in the presence of the Lord. Just instantaneously, you're going, yeah, that's right, man, I'm ready for that. Well, what's happened? We're still together. We're still worshiping the Lord here in Springfield. Now we're all together in heaven doing the same thing we're doing here, only in His presence. To me, that would be perfect timing. I would love if the Lord came back right at that moment. That would be great. I'd love to be raptured while I'm teaching the Bible, while I'm worshiping the Lord, while I'm praying, while I'm sharing my faith. I mean, wouldn't it just be great to be praying, oh Lord, I just pray for and look with great anticipation for the time that you take me home and we're there, we're home. That'd be awesome. Oh, I'm here, Lord. It's great, Lord. It's so good that I'm here, you know, and, and, and oh, I was just praying, Lord, and I was praying that I would be here, and now I'm here. Yeah, you're here, Tom. Yeah, I pray, you know, it, it, it's awesome. Now, the opposite of that would be a real bummer. You're down here on the earth and the rapture happens and now you're in heaven, but your last words on earth was, I can't believe that guy cut me off. Doesn't know how to drive, 
where did you learn to drive? You know, and, and you're all of a sudden in the presence of the Lord. Oh, man. Uh, uh. See, at that point, it really doesn't matter what how that other person drives, does it? None of that matters. My point is, is I don't want to be so attached to this world that when Jesus returns, I don't have peace. I don't have oneness. I don't have prosperity. Because peace, which means oneness, also has the idea of prosperity. In other words, you know that you've been working together with the Lord, serving the Lord, sharing your faith, watching people come to faith in Christ. So that when you see Jesus face to face, suddenly you're you're prospering in that joy that comes from finally seeing Jesus face to face. Happiness beyond compare, the reward of the blessedness of heaven. That's what it means to be truly prospering. But again, you can be found in Him right now with the same prosperity of joy and happiness and blessedness by making sure our hearts are where they need to be, by falling in love with the Lord all over again. I know I've shared this before, but I think about you know when you first fell in love with your wife. You know, for me it was back in, you know, in, in old phones. You know, when you pick up the phone that was still connected to the wall and you had to dial it, didn't have the cell phones. You know, and it cost money to call long distance and and you know. Um, I lived in Newport Beach and my wife lived in Fontana and, and I would call her and it was, oh, I love you, I love you too. No, you hang up. No, you hang up first. Oh, no, no, you hang up. You know, oh, and, and, then, and then my mom would get the phone bill or, you know, her mom and was like, what are you doing talking forever on the phone? But, oh, we just couldn't hang up. We couldn't hang up, you know, just just love it. And you're so in love. But then you get married. And you've been married 15, 20, 30 years and she calls you on the phone and says, honey, we're out of milk. Could you pick up some milk on the way home? Oh, come on. i got to get out of the car and walk 50 feet to the store. I'm tired. I just want to go home and go to bed. Listen, this is the heart of what Peter's saying. If you're truly at peace, then your heart is going to have that oneness, that love that you had when you first came to Christ. You're so focused, so together with the Lord. Did you let nothing interrupt that in your life? That's what Peter means when he says, be diligent to be found by Him in peace. Be diligent in that oneness and prosperity, that love, that joy of just being together. Get our eyes off the things of the world and onto Christ. Now, not only are we to be found in Him by peace, but Peter goes on to say in verse 14, to be diligent to be found by Him without spot. And he said, that's an easy one. I got rid of my dog spot years ago. And so, no, actually the word spot means free from censure. It means to be irreproachable, free from vice, unsullied. It carries with it the idea that you won't be careless, thoughtless, and lazy. Think about this. How do you get a spot on, on, on your clothes, on your shirt or blouse? By being careless, right? Thoughtless or lazy. Oh, I can't believe that that spilled on me. You know, you get that spot. Peter says, would it be diligent to be found in him not careless, not thoughtless, not lazy? Why? Well, because you know that at any time you're going to meet your maker. So you don't want any, any stain on your clothes of righteousness that he's given to you. You want it without spots. You know, I've done quite a few weddings over, over the years. Now, in all the weddings that I've done, I've never gone in to pray for the brides. I like to go in and pray for the brides beforehand and, and the grooms. I've never gone in to pray for the bride. I've talked to the bride in the wedding ceremony only to find her munching down on a, on a mounds bar, you know, a chocolate bar and chocolates all over her fingers and it's on her gown and, and they, you know, and she's kind of like this, you know. I've never gone in to, to talk to a groom and pray for the groom and, and see him, you know, wearing, you know, sweats and a t-shirt and, you know, muscle shirt and with paint on it. No way. It's quite the opposite. The bride's gown, man, that cost hundreds if not thousands of dollars is all, 
all in, in plastic and it's carried very gingerly to the place where the bride puts it on and careful not to have anyone get, don't get near my dress, you know, don't touch, are your hands clean, don't, don't touch, you know, and she, she, she's preparing for the presentation of the bride and the groom. She spent hours and in, in, in days for this day. In fact, I know this happens because my daughter who, who does hair for weddings, she, they'll have these brides come in like weeks beforehand and just give me the, I want you to do my hair like it's going to be in my wedding day, a, a dry run type of thing. Let me also say this, the many weddings that I have done here, I don't think any of them started on time. I'll tell you why. Because once you get a group of women together in one room with a bridal dress and desire everything to be perfect, it's going to take some time. <laughs> the whole thing is an ordeal. Why? No spots. She doesn't want to walk up the aisle with some stain or blemish or spot. She's going to be found in peace without spot, so she can be considered also blameless. In fact, that's the word that people, uh, Peter uses for blameless. In verse 14, it means without rebuke. So that means that for the bride, she's without any rebuke as she's standing there waiting for her groom. She's prepared herself perfectly to meet him. Do you see the picture here? What, what we should be doing. Without a, a, she's standing in the bride without ever thought of going to her past life. She's without any hesitation. She's drawn close to the groom where she will find happiness and satisfaction for the rest of her days. That's what Peter's saying here. We are the church. We're the bride of Christ. We're clothed in His righteousness, His goodness, because all of our, our goodness is His filthy rags, the Bible says. We're standing here without any thought of ever going back to our old lives, making sure our garments stay clean. We, we stay away from sin. We're living in such a way that we can be found in Him in peace without spot and blameless. And we say, eh, that's not me right now. That's not happening at the moment. Listen, I, I can relate. Because if being in peace means oneness, spotless, and blameless, then the problem is I have stains. I keep getting stains. and I keep dropping stuff on my garment of praise. And I think we all struggle with that. But that's why Peter moves from the condition of our hearts to, to point number two, the condition of our minds. Look at verse 15. He says, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. That word for consider means to suppose, think on, meditate on. He says, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, is written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of the things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twisted their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. So Paul moves from our hearts to our minds. The heart, you're supposed to be at peace without spot and blameless. Now, when it comes to the mind, we realize that it's only through a studied mind that we can have a heart in that three-part condition. See, for the most part, if someone is committed to the study of God's Word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, they know God. As long as they don't add other stuff into it, they can know God. And the studied mind knows that the greatest attribute and or characteristic of a compassionate God towards us is His long-suffering love. So that when Peter says in verse 15 that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, he wants to remind his readers how much the Lord loves us. Let me just say this. That the Lord Jesus has not yet returned to this earth for one reason and one reason only. That more people might be saved. That more and more people might be snatched out of the claws of death and judgment. That's the reason the Lord delays His return. His delay is not because he's forgotten the earth. His delay is not because he's angry because man has not paid more attention to his word or, or his teaching. And certainly not because he doesn't care and love man enough to deliver him out of the evil corruption and suffering of this world. 
fact is, the Lord cares to love man so much, He wants all men to be saved. He longs for men to repent and turn to Him. He, he shrinks from the thought of returning because He knows that when He returns, every single unbeliever is going to be doomed forever and ever. So He waits one more day. He waits longing for a few more to be saved. He waits because He knows that all unbelievers will be doomed to the judgment and destruction. Think about how long-suffering God's love has been towards you. When you, were, when you didn't love Him while you were still sinners, God loved you. He waited for you. That's long-suffering love. Now, when we think of love, we don't think of love in that way. It's usually, you know, the human aspect of love. Well, I'll love you as long as you love me. I'll love you as long as you're lovable. But that's not God's love. See, on a, on a human level, you don't hear, I love you even though you don't love me. No, typically, I, I love those who love me. But to love someone that doesn't love me, or doesn't want to love me, to love someone that is proven to me through their actions, their lack of love towards me, and that they are downright mean and nasty, that's a different story. But not for God. He loved us. He loved you anyway. In fact, you'll never hear me. If you ever have ever a counseling appointment with me, you'll never hear me say, I know what your problem is. God doesn't love you anymore. That, that's a problem. Sorry, he's sick of hearing your problems. Uh, remember how you were supposed to forgive 70 times 7, which is 490? Well, buddy, you've sinned 491 times. God doesn't love you anymore. Sorry. You're done. Can't do that. Why? Because uh, that's not who God is. Now, I think sometimes we assume that that's what God is doing in our lives from time to time. Things don't turn out the way we think they should turn out. We think that some way God is, is punishing us so that He doesn't love us. Maybe we've fallen into some sin and said to ourselves, I know God, you can't, you can't love me now. I'm such a sinner. And God says, yes, you are a sinner. But that's why I came to save you and show you just how much I love you and will forgive you. Why? Because it's God's goodness that leads us to repentance. And it's God's long-suffering love towards us that keeps us coming back to the cross, back to the place where He laid down His life for our sins. Don't ever buy into the, to the lie that God doesn't love you. That's what Satan wants you to think. Quit drinking the poison of haterade. You know, just because you blow it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you anymore any less. God is love. That's grace. Now, it amazes me. It blows my mind. I think that's the reason many people struggle with their salvation from time to time is because we don't fully understand the grace of God. And, and certainly to the world looking in at the church, they can't comprehend God's grace and forgiveness. They look at some hardened criminal in jail that has, has repented of their sin and come to Christ and, and has truly changed their way. And, and they say, no way. How, after all that person is done, how can God love them? But He does. Because God is long-suffering and He's unwilling that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So God has given us a choice. But sadly, as a result of free choice, God doesn't, you know, God doesn't get what He wants, which is for men and women to be saved. And when it comes to salvation, Peter says at the end of verse 16, when it comes to salvation... Though it's hard at times to understand the Apostle Paul, because you know, Paul is just brainiac, okay? Peter says, there are those who are untaught and unstable, people who have twisted his words to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Now, I like that Peter here is pointing out that Paul's words, his letters, are equal to the rest of Scriptures. He's making that, that a part of God's Word. But what is he saying? That, that they, they, they're, they're twisting the Scriptures to their own destruction, I mean, think about it. Think about the Jehovah Witnesses. What do they do? They twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. The, the, the Mormons, many Catholics, they, they could go on. Some hyper-Calvinists. Once saved, always saved, so it doesn't really matter how I live, I'm going to heaven. Someone, someone's called that greasy grace. 
See, Peter is saying during this time that there were those who were twisting God's word and misusing God's grace. In fact, they were ignoring grace altogether and attempting to live under the law to achieve salvation. So Peter says, take my buddy Paul. You know, some of the things he says are they're hard to understand. But there are those who are even twisting his words, trying to defend their ignorance. They, they were really accusing Paul of preaching legalism. That the word for twist also has the idea of torture. I mean, really, that's, that's what happens when we take the grace of God and we turn it into legalism in order to accomplish our objective. It's torture. That's what happens when, when we attempt to control people in the congregation of God and the church with rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and this and that. Peter says, don't twist it. But then we have the other end of that. We have the Apostle Paul who was accused of teaching that since we're saved by grace, it makes no difference how we live. In fact, Paul mentions that in his letter to the Romans in Romans 3.8 when he says that it was slanderously reported that Paul was teaching, let us do evil that good may come. That's twisted, sister. That's twisted, brother. Twisted the, twisting the word of God to their own destruction. In the same way, there are those today that say, well, if God is going to keep loving me over and over again, He's not going to stop loving me, then I can live however I want to live for the next 10 or 15 years because, hey, God loves me. Then when I start to get old and weak, and I'll come back to God in just the right time. I mean, if you do that to somebody that loves you that much as He does, then you really are twisted. But we wouldn't do that because we really know His love and we've experienced His grace and we know in our minds that it is long-suffering love towards us that leads us to salvation. Because if you understand this love, then as we close out the chapter in verses 17 and 18, we move from the heart to the mind to our walk. And that's our point number three, the condition of our walks. Look at verses 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Back to verse 17, Peter says, Since you know this beforehand. What do you know beforehand? Well, in your mind, you've determined through the study of His Word how much you see the long-suffering of God towards you. In your heart, you've determined to be at peace with Him. No spot, no blemish. But even if there's a spot or blemish, you know the Lord, Lord loves you and His grace will cover. And finally, Peter says, What is the condition of your walk? What are you doing to maintain that right relationship with God? He says here, you need to have a steadfastness in your life. That word steadfastness in verse 17 means stability or certain direction. Listen, we all know what to do. It amazes me sometimes when people say, I really really don't know what the Lord wants me to do. I say, well, are you studying your Bible? No, not lately. Have you been praying? Well, not really. Well, have you been fellowshipping with other believers? No, I haven't been to church in a while. I don't seem to get along with Christians, so I'm hanging out with my old friends in the world. Well, have you told anybody about Jesus and the relationship that you have with Him? No, I'm kind of shy. Listen, you know what to do. Read, pray, go to church and share your faith. If you don't maintain that steadfastness, that stability, that direction, then you will, in verse 17, Peter says, be led away down the path of error along with the wicked. See, Peter says, here's the key. This is the culmination of my letter to you, my conclusion, my final point. Understand this, if you haven't understood anything else in my letter, in verse 18, he says, you need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how we live right side up in this upside down world. Your walk with Christ needs to be one in which you're growing, not only in the grace, but also in knowledge. 
Let me say this, because if you have, have grace, if all you have is grace, then you won't have the knowledge to know what is right and what is wrong. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.34, Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. To your shame. See, if you just trust in God's grace, then you may find yourself doing something that is wrong without even knowing that it's wrong. But in the same way, if all you have is knowledge and no grace, then all you'll have is a list of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs and, and this and that. And sadly enough, when you blow it and you make a wrong mistake, you won't have His grace to bring you back and give you another try of a list of the do's and don'ts that you've established. That's why Peter's showing us the balance here. He's saying it's important to have the knowledge of His Word along with the grace so that we know that when we've blown it, we can come to Him after the fact and find that grace and mercy and help in time of need. And as a result, we grow in His grace. We show His grace. Because you now have the knowledge of God to know when I blow it, but you also have the grace of God to know that you don't meet up with the requirements of life and God's grace is for you. And that is why Peter can so rightly close with, to Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Why did God be the glory? Because of what He has done for us. He's given us that grace, so when we make mistakes, He's also given me His word, so I won't make many mistakes. And because of His long-suffering love that keeps me on the right path, He continues to show me the importance of Bible study and witnessing and fellowshipping and prayer. See, I think we all know what our walks are supposed to be like. And again, it's a pat answer. I give it, but, but it's a right answer. When you don't know what to do, you do what you know. We know we need to be praying. We know we need to be in the Word. We know we need to be in fellowship. And we know to be, be sharing our faith. You continue in those things and, and we're, we're not going to stumble and our lives will be different because we know God is gracious. Now you say, well, because I know God is gracious, I thought I would just cruise along in God's grace for a while. No, understand, the grace of God was not designed for you to be able to just jump into sin and jump out of it at will. As Paul says, should we continue in sin so grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? No, the grace of God was given to us for those times that we fall into sin and want to get out, not for jumping into sin. Big difference. Grace is for falling, not for jumping. If you want to jump into sin and continue to live in sin, then that's not a matter of grace. That's a matter of salvation, and you need to get saved. God's grace was not designed for us to keep on sinning. God's grace was divinely designed to pick us up from falling. Lord, I'm falling. I'm sorry. Yeah, my grace is, is here. It's for you. But if you're walking in some religion that you know, makes you make for your own rules and, and has nothing to do with God's grace and you continue to assume upon His grace, then you're going to find yourself in a miserable condition. And God's not going to allow you to stay that way if you're truly a child of God. But in fact, if you, if you have a perfect balance of grace and knowledge, then we'll all grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, Peter's final words, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And I wholeheartedly agree. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word and these closing words that Peter has for us. Peter, knowing that he was about to die and be home with you, Lord, he encourages us to make sure, Lord, our hearts are right with you, that our minds are right with you, Lord, and our walk is right with you. That we wouldn't be swayed by the things that we see in this world or discouraged, but we would be hopeful, Lord. Knowing that in any given moment, even right now as we are all praying together, Lord, we can be in your presence at the rapture of the church. 
That would be so sweet, Lord. But Lord, help us to redeem the time as we're here upon this earth, seeking to, to win others, Lord, to you, Lord, seeking to, to see many salvations. Lord, we know that you are long-suffering towards, towards us. You're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Lord, help us to have that same heart, a heart for the lost. And Lord, again, we do want to thank you for those that, that uh, uh, have given their lives for the service of our country. I pray your blessing upon our folks today, Lord, as we celebrate Memorial Day. Give them just a great uh, weekend of family relationship renewing, Lord, of being that witness even around maybe non-believers in our families. And to you, Lord, we give you the glory both now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.